Welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm Partner and Head of Education here at Shakespeare Martineau and I'm joined today by my colleague Geraldine Swanton who's a legal director with me in the education team. In today's episode we're discussing the always fascinating but rather vexed question of the duty of care owed by universities to their students prompted by a recent Radio 4 Moneybox episode, which suggested that the duty of care should extend, amongst other things, to the provision of healthcare. Now, if I had my way, I would expunge the phrase from the English language because it's often used in a way that conflates moral and ethical duties with legal ones, when, to be honest, the legal ones alone can be complex and very difficult to pin down. So, Jerry, how about trying to bring some sense to this subject by um, explaining what a legal duty of care is? I I think the first act of rationality would be, as you suggest, to expunge it from the vocabulary. But short of doing that, I think, well, we just need to understand what a duty of care is. And it's a duty not to injure those that it might reasonably be foreseen will be harmed by careless acts or omissions in circumstances where the law considers it fair, just and reasonable for there to be such a duty. So negligence, of course, occurs when there is such a duty of care. The duty is broken, it's breached, and there's some kind of causal link between the breach and the damage caused, and the damage isn't too remote. That means there must have been some kind of reasonably foreseeable consequence of the careless act or omission. So I suppose in other words, look, liability will be imposed on universities for negligence to the extent to which a university can reasonably be expected to exert some control in the circumstances. So I think this claim went much too far in expecting universities to exert control. Okay, well, maybe then we should say a little bit about what the the claim was. What what was the claim being made in the money box? The claim said it was where a student had, in fact, registered with a university medical practice in his first year. I think it was her first year, sorry. Uh, In the second year, the student went home because of lockdown, uh, registered with a doctor at home. And then on return to campus following... uh, the end of the lockdown, couldn't register at the university practice because it was full. And the students said they may be compelled to to get private medical care and the university should bear the cost because it was the university's duty to provide medical care. And a solicitor uh, who was invited onto the uh, Moneybox programme said, yes, indeed, it would be a breach of the university's duty of care not to either provide or to refuse to fund medical care in the circumstances. Now, for me... (laughs) Once I'd recovered from my apoplexy, um, I felt it went far too far because the claim failed to take into account the purpose of a university, which is, as you and I and everybody else out there knows, is to provide education and training and to provide students with a reasonable opportunity to attain the relevant qualification for which they've enrolled. Now, what is reasonable surely must be determined within that 
context. And so, as far as I can see, while it is reasonable for universities to provide a range of services to support students to engage with their programmes or to engage in university life, and that would encompass pastoral and welfare support, imposing a duty to provide healthcare to meet the medical needs of their student population is far removed from the purpose and nature of universities as educational institutions because look look they're not microcosms standing in splendid isolation from the rest of our society and its statutory agencies and it's the function of the NHS to provide healthcare and to meet meet the healthcare needs of the population and not universities and given the challenges experienced by the NHS it would impose an impossible and disproportionate burden on universities to seek to achieve what the NHS was created to do. So I, I would assume courts would see it as not fair, not just, and not reasonable in the circumstances to require them to do so. I suppose the, the, the difficulty comes from, if we go all the way back to the famous snail case of Donahue against Stevenson and Lord Macmillan's um, statement that the categories of negligence are never closed. Um, and therefore, there could be the argument that what is reasonable has to adapt and evolve with expectations of modern life. And I'm thinking in particular that, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion about the duty to provide support for students' mental health as part of their studies. And certainly in the work we're doing currently with the Student Futures Commission, a recognition that, you know, post-pandemic, there are different needs that universities ought to meet. And I think I suppose that the, the, the question I'd have for you is even taking all that into account, even taking into account the, the, the evolving nature of the relationship and the, the gradual extension of things that, um, that might be you know, considered reasonable to provide, we still think that healthcare, general healthcare, would be a bridge too far. I think it is. I mean, a university in seeking to provide positive outcomes for students has to take into account the characteristics of its student body. But the duty must be to provide services broadly within its power and, and, and role as an educational institution. And if we start saying we, we are a microcosm, completely detached from the society in which we live, in which our government and our laws have imposed obligations on relevant agencies to provide various services. If we start gradually assuming responsibility for those services, well, I think it becomes an impossible, I think universities will fail. They will not be able to deliver because it is an impossible task and way outside their mission. There's a difference between support and medical care to me. Yeah needs in my view I yeah. wrong but well no no I agree with that and I think the risk we run is that firstly um if the conversation sort of becomes the norm that of course universities should provide this then you start to think well will courts consider that as a sort of matter of public policy yeah they should provide it the second thing I suppose is is that classic assumption of responsibility argument that if you assume the responsibility to provide it then the courts will judge you against that assumption of responsibility rather than what the standard of care might otherwise be. I think uh, the final question I wanted to ask you was about a sort of ancillary point that was made in the uh, Moneybox programme which was whether the provision of access to healthcare might be a reasonable adjustment for students with disabilities and uh, what did you think about that then? 
Well, well, the solicitor who was being interviewed was very clear that it would be a breach of uh, disability discrimination legislation not to provide health care. And, and as you can imagine, I disagreed with that as well. <laughs> um, the duty to make adjustments uh, under the Equality Act includes the duty to provide auxiliary aids and services to prevent students suffering substantial disadvantage in respect of their disabilities. Now, unfortunately, the Equality Act has not defined an auxiliary service service. But guidance issued by the Equality and Human Rights Commission states that it is anything which provides additional support or assistance to a disabled student. And the examples the guidance provides is, you know, sign language interpreters, note takers, which are services inextricably bound up with learning and the function of universities as educational institutions. So I would I would assume quite uh, it was a strong assumption on my part that a strong expectation that the very the duty is very likely to be interpreted as services the duty to provide an auxiliary service closely related to the educational service being provided and would not extend to medical care per se. Um, there's also another point in the guidance. I think that my assumption is reinforced by the guidance because it says that nothing in the Act requires an education provider to provide an auxiliary service to be used for personal purposes unconnected to the education benefit facility or service being provided uh, to the student. And also the guidance provides various criteria by which we assess reasonableness of any adjustment, uh, any proposed adjustment, adjustment. And one of them is the resources available to an, uh, a university. And secondly, it's the extent to which services are otherwise provided for disabled students. So the NHS is there to provide medical care for students who need medical care for their disability and therefore you know universities providing it does not seem to fall within the ambit of reasonableness at least as far as the you know the um, guidance is concerned. I think it's uh, it's it's just shows that um, the word reasonable has so much hanging on it doesn't it and I think the question that we're most often asked by uh, clients and the one that we find the hardest to answer is is this a reasonable adjustment and yeah uh, but for all the reasons you've given it does feel like the provision of access to general health care uh, mm -hmm. would be a bridge too far and perhaps really the, um, the the attention should be focused on why the NHS can no longer meet those those obligations. The other uh, area where universities might possibly incur liability is if they promise medical care and their prospectuses, um, you know, re you know, regale students with all the support and, and benefits of the particular university are, including uh, the ability to register with a doctor. Um, who knows? Uh, a student might rely on that to choose University A over University B, and there might be some ground there for saying it's a breach of contract not to provide medical, uh, medical care. But again, Smita, you know, I suppose it depends on, on the extent of that contractual undertaking, even our doctors don't guarantee we will get an appointment when we want it. I've had to wait two weeks for appointment today. So yeah. it would be interesting to see if an attempt was made to claim uh, for breach of contract because you couldn't, uh, well, A, couldn't register and B, if you did register, you couldn't get a timely appointment.
And I think that's that's the, uh, the the challenge we face, that very little of this is litigated and we're just left with the sort of words of the legislation or the common law to try and interpret in this incredibly complex and evolving environment. Um, anyway, Jerry, thank you very much. As always, that was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thanks very much to everyone for listening and we hope you'll join us next time. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Um, if you like what you've heard, please do leave a review. And until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye for me.